Who in your life do you trust most? If I were to ask you to name two or three of the most trustworthy people in your life, who would you name? Now, I want you to think about them for a moment and ask yourself this question. Why is it that you trust them? What in your mind makes these people so trustworthy to you? Now, my guess is that some of you are going to say reliability. These people were faithful and constant in what they say they were going to do, and they did it. Along similar lines, some of you might say, they were with me through thick and thin and when I needed them most. They proved themselves true in the most difficult moments of life, and that's why I trust them. They have never yet given me a reason not to trust them. Still, others of you might mention integrity, honesty, truthfulness. They gave good advice that proved true. And so we trust them. We trust people as we see their character and see patterns of their loyalty and faithfulness to us. The higher our confidence in these people, the more we trust them, the more we listen to them. And the same is true of the God that we worship and serve here together. The more we come to see his character and his pattern of loyalty and faithfulness to us, the more we trust him and believe in him as we need to. The more we place our faith in him completely. And ultimately, we see God's character and his faithfulness to us in the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. It's here where we learn together who our God is and where we see his character revealed to us, his patterns of steadfast love and mercy to us. And so it is my hope today that as we see Jesus revealed in John 11 through 1 1 through 16, that we come, all of us, to deepen our own faith and trust in him all the more. And that in trusting him, God would be glorified. So this brings us then to John 11, 1 through 16. And as we look at this text, we find that there is a man named Lazarus who is sick. Lazarus is identified as the brother of Mary and Martha, who many knew in the early church. These three were described as faithful followers of Jesus, and Jesus would stay at their place in Bethany near Jerusalem when it was the Passover. Mary, in particular, came to be known for her act of love for Jesus. She was known as the woman who wiped the Lord's feet with her hair and with incredibly expensive perfume. And so this well-known account circulated the early church from the earliest days. And it was used as an identifier of this Mary. This is the Mary we're talking about in contrast to the other many Marys in that day and age. And so John identifies them as this Mary because of what the people knew about her. And so after identifying these three disciples, John identifies Lazarus as the one who is sick. And because he's incredibly sick, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus through a servant or through a friend. And the message they give, as we read here, is very simple and straight to the point. Lord, the one you love is sick. 
They let Jesus know that Lazarus, whom Jesus loves dearly, is sick and on the point of death. And it's implied here, of course, that they want Jesus to come and heal their brother. They hope that Jesus will make Lazarus well again, just as they've seen him do over and over and over again for the crowds surrounding him. So on hearing about the sickness that befalls Lazarus, what does he say? He assures the messenger and those around him that this will not end in death, but it will be used for the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. This is his response when he learns about Lazarus being near the point of death. And in a simple statement from Jesus, we learn that the suffering and pain that Lazarus is going through and the pain they're going through will not be wasted. It will somehow be used in a greater way to bring glory to God and to Jesus as the Son of God. It will not end in death. And in a way, this is a theme that Jesus has already hit on before in the Gospel of John. If we go back just a couple chapters to chapter 9, the disciples similarly asked questions about a blind man who was suffering in the streets. And when they see this blind man, the disciples ask Jesus, why is this man suffering? Who was it that caused him to suffer such pain and misery, they ask. And their overly simplistic worldview only allowed for pain and suffering to happen to those who deserved it, to those who were asking for it, a form of karma, you might say. But in Jesus' response to them, we find an alternate view to pain and suffering. He says to them, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. In other words, my name will be glorified through this sickness, through this tragedy. Jesus is at work transforming all the pain and suffering that befall people, and he's transforming it to bring about his glory. In a similar way then, as we see the sickness that befalls Lazarus, Jesus is again saying something remarkably similar. The sickness of Lazarus won't end in death, but the glory of God. And this is what is most important. Now make no mistake about it. Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But I think sometimes we can wonder, right? How is it love for Jesus to use Lazarus' sickness and death for God's own glory? How is that loving or good? I think that's a question we're sometimes tempted to ask, at least when we're going through suffering and pain. And as we work through this question, I think it's important for us to first remember what it means to glorify God. To glorify God means to praise him to the highest degree possible. It means to make him look as infinitely precious and valuable as he truly is. And we realize only God deserves glory and no one else because he is the author and creator of life. And so glory belongs to the one who is infinitely precious and beautiful because he contains life within himself. 
And so Jesus uses the sickness and death as an opportunity to display how infinitely valuable and precious he is in God. So how does this work out for their good? How does making God and Jesus look infinitely valuable lead to our good, even here this morning? Just as the brilliant sparkle of a diamond attracts people to it in awe and wonder, so in a greater and far better way is the brilliant sparkle of God's glory that draws people to himself. And as people are drawn to God as they see his glory through trusting and believing in him, they find salvation. They find eternal life as they are captivated by the beauty and glories of our God. And so it is God's glory displayed that leads to our salvation and our redemption. And so God's glory leads to our good. So Jesus, in his love for people, will not waste this tragic event, but he will transform Lazarus' sickness and death into an occasion for his glory, and in his glory, bring salvation to those who are around him, to those who trust in him and believe in him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. What we learn then is that Jesus is at work transforming every sickness, pain, and death into an occasion for redemptive glory. And he wants to do the same for you here this morning as well. He wants to redeem you, all of you, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've done, no matter your background. God wants to redeem all that you've been through to bring healing, meaning, and purpose to your life. He wants to redeem all of you because he loves you and cares deeply about you. And one day, Jesus will fully and completely redeem all things. He will undo all that is sad and broken in this world to the glory and praise of his name. And this is the hope that we cling to even as we look to the resurrection. He is making all things new. And now while this may be you may be able to understand this intellectually at times. We admit that this is not always easy to understand emotionally or experientially when we're going through pain in that moment. And John, being aware of this reality, assures the reader in verse 5 that Jesus does, in fact, love them even in their pain. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So make no mistake about it. He loves them. And so as we continue reading, because Jesus loved them and he cared about them, he went right away to see them, right? He went right away to be there with them in their sickness and their pain and their struggles, right? I mean, that's what we would do. If someone you loved was in the hospital, they were on death's doorsteps, you go. And you're with them in those moments. And that's good. And that's right. But that's not what we read here about what Jesus does, is it? What do we read instead? What we read instead is that because Jesus loved them, he stayed two more days in the place he was before departing. 
He stayed two more days exactly because he loved them. And in delaying his visit, Jesus is ensuring the reality that when he finally arrives, Lazarus will be good and dead for at least four days. And yet this waiting is somehow connected to his love for them. He is not giving them what they want, but what they need. He's bringing about a greater good by allowing them to go through some suffering and temporary pain. Because he could have said, go and be well. He's all right now. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he lets Lazarus die. Needless to say, this is completely counterintuitive to the way we think. It really challenges us to, cha- to think about our own definition of love. Now, for some of us, what Jesus does here looks more like hate than love. And that's because we often adopt a different view of what love is from our surrounding culture. Our culture tells us, in the words of Kevin DeYoung, that love is maximizing my immediate happiness today. It's giving me what I think will give me the most happiness here and now, devoid of what God thinks. And if you don't love me in the way I want to be loved, also known as, you know, giving me what I want, then it's probably not love. That's how our world thinks and behaves when it comes to a worldly definition of love. Love in our culture is also defined by affirming and accepting everything I believe, no matter what God thinks about. It's making me feel accepted in my beliefs and actions, even if it's contrary to what God desires. We might put it this way. If you don't make me feel accepted in what I think or do, then you must not love me. And sometimes we unknowingly adopt elements of this into our own definition of love. But as Christians here this morning, we operate with a different sense of the word love, don't we? Love is not necessarily connected with maximizing my immediate happiness or even affirming everything I believe I want and need. Love is instead connected with maximizing the person's happiness in the one true God and in his ways that bring life in the end. Christian love is oriented towards future happiness and fulfillment rather than immediate freedom from suffering and pain. And I think that the best type of analogy for this type of love is parenting. If you're a parent, and even if you're not, you understand that sometimes you allow your child to go through painful circumstances because in the end, it's what's best for him. And you do this not because you hate them, but because you deeply love them. Pain is often needed for both growth and healing. And an example of this might be a situation that Shannon and I found ourselves in not too long ago. Our son, Elias, was brushing his teeth, and he somehow tripped and fell, and he bit straight through his lip. It was bad. And as you can imagine, he needed stitches. And so we took him into the emergency room at 9 p.m. at night on a Monday night. 
And here we have a picture of him sitting there waiting for the doctor to see him. And that is as calm as he was in that moment. Now, of course, he was fine up until the point they needed to put stitches into his lip to, to help heal it and to keep it from being infected. And so as Shannon and I held Elias down while they put stitches into his lip, he screamed his head off. He was in pain. He was in agony. He looked at us with tears in his eyes, and I could tell in that moment he was doubting our goodness. Do mom and dad really have my best at heart? And we felt the pain too as we held him down. It was hard. He didn't understand why we were allowing him that pain or suffering, but we were doing it, allowing it for his good because we loved him and we cared about him deeply. And so as a parent, sometimes you make the hard decision for your child that will cause them temporary pain, even if it's beyond the comprehension of your child at the moment, and you do this for their good, even though they might be confused. And in a similar, but far greater way, Jesus is delaying his visit to Mary and Martha for their good. He is allowing them temporary pain, the temporary pain of their brother's death so that they might reap eternal life found in himself alone as they see Jesus for who he truly is, the son of God that we must trust and place our faith in completely. For as we'll find, it is only in Jesus that we can find the answer to the most pressing problem facing all of mankind. He is the answer to the problem of sin and death, which has the power to separate us from the God of life. And Jesus, in his love, meets this deepest need as we look to him and trust him alone. And so Jesus then delays his visits, and he does it because he loves them. He loves them far beyond anything they could imagine or think. And in the end, this will bring about maximal happiness for his people, even though temporarily in the moment, it's hard. So our call here this morning then is to trust Jesus, to look to him even in the midst of great pain and suffering. Even when we, like my son Elias, don't fully understand what our father is doing, our call is to trust him through it all who loves us deeply. And if we ever doubt his love or care for us, we must remember that Jesus himself walked the path of suffering and pain in our place. And because God the Father gave up his son for us, we can trust him no matter what we are going through. And so we must trust him. We must run to him, the God of love, and find embrace in his loving, caring arms. As we come back to the account then, we pick back up in verse 7. And here, it's where Jesus decides it's finally time to go to Judea, where Lazarus is located. Now, we have to pause here for a moment, for a moment and talk about Judea, because this was the place where Jesus was nearly stoned to death for claiming that he and the Father we're one, just a chapter back. And the disciples remind him of this with great exasperation. You know, Jesus, you were just nearly killed there, and you want to go back already? And then Jesus responds saying, aren't there 12 hours in a day? 
If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. And so while at first it, may, it might not be obvious what Jesus is saying here, uh, we can break it down pretty quickly as we understand what he is generally saying. The 12 hours in a day was a reference to the light that existed during the work hours of the day. People worked in the daylight. That's what they did. And so when you work in the daylight, guess what? You don't stumble, trip, or fall because you can see where you're going. You can see what you're doing. But then Jesus uses this basic analogy and he applies it to himself. I am the light of the world. And while I am with you, my disciples, we will be okay. You don't have to fear for I am with you. Those who need to be worried are those without the light of the world, those who do not have Jesus. And so Jesus is so confident in his mission and purpose that he is confident no harm will come to him or his disciples while he works to fulfill his father's mission. And he wants his disciples here to carry the same confidence with them as they are with Jesus. And so after giving them this word of encouragement to go into this dangerous territory, he then tells them they need to go because Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, of course, his disciples don't understand what Jesus means here. What what do you mean Lazarus has fallen asleep? Are you saying we should risk our lives to go see Lazarus when he's just sleeping? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Won't he just wake up? Do we, is this necessary? But what, if, but what Jesus is, of course, saying is Lazarus had died. And he tells them that. And this kind of raises a question for us if we, if we slow down for a moment. Why didn't Jesus just say Lazarus died? Was he like just trying to not tell them the bad news that their friend had passed away? I, I don't think so. And I think he frames Lazarus' death in this way because he is training his disciples to see death in a different way, in a different light. Death isn't to be viewed as final any longer for his disciples. Death is to be viewed as temporary just as sleep is. It is for a moment, but it is not forever. And what we witness here is that Jesus is beginning to reverse the curse of death in the garden. And death here no longer has the final victory of despair and sorrow, but it will somehow end up glorifying God and Jesus. And with Jesus, death itself, this once horrible curse, will even bring about the salvation of his disciples as they learn to trust him as the source of life. Which is why he says right afterwards, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you might believe. This is what they need more than anything. And so what is clear is that death is no longer final. It is temporary with the arrival of Jesus. And this brings us great hope even in the midst of great tragic loss, pain, and suffering because it is no longer permanent. It is only temporary. And Jesus here with his words is undoing even the permanence of death 
and now through it, bringing life to his disciples. And so after announcing the death of Lazarus, Jesus calls his disciples then to go with them to that location. And it's at this moment that Thomas, whom we commonly call Doubting Thomas, speaks up. And he says, let's go too, so that we may die with him. Now, sometimes I think we're inclined to view this as pessimistic, considering, you know, all the doubts that Thomas has at the very end. But I'm inclined to view what he says here more as a courageous statement rather than a cynical or pessimistic one. If I were to paraphrase what Thomas says here, it might be something to the effect of, let's go with Jesus and even be willing to die with him if necessary. It seems to be a statement of courageous defiance in the face of death that seems to be what Jesus had called his disciples to have just moments ago in the previous verses. You know, have confidence in me. I'm the light of the world. We'll be okay if you go with me. So even if you are inclined, though, to take Thomas's words here as cynical and pessimistic, what is important is that the words Thomas speaks here are truer than he knows. Because those who find true life, eternal life, resurrection life, are those who are willing to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. Even as Jesus famously said to his disciples in the other three gospel accounts, whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And I think this is the idea here that John is capturing again. The one who is willing to lose his life for the sake of Christ will save it. For he is the author of life. And the one who is willing to trust him in that way will find his soul eternally saved. And so the call for us is, as Thomas speaks, is to do the same. Entrust yourself to Jesus, even in the midst of doubt and hardship. Trust him even if you don't fully understand what he's doing in your life. Find warm embrace in his love, for he is the all-knowing, all-caring God of the universe. And I want to admit, of course, that this is far easier to say than to do. It's easy to say, trust God and trust yourself to him and everything will be fine and it will work out in the end, right? Easy to say that, hard to do when you're going through massive calamity. To trust God in the middle of trials, in the middle of pain and suffering, that's where it becomes incredibly difficult. And it's in those moments it will reveal how much we truly trust God with our life. The fires of life will reveal how much we truly trust him. And it's often in these moments that we find we don't trust God as much as we should. We don't trust in the goodness of his character like we should. And even as we continue to read John, we realize that even Thomas here, who seems to be defiant in the face of death, is shown to have little to no faith in Christ at the end when he sees him dead on a cross. His trust in Christ is nearly non-existent until he sees Jesus again. And the same is also true of Peter who pledged to die with Christ but ended up denying him three times at the very end. But we thank God for these stories 
because it shows us that even when we get hit by the trials and storms of life and we are tempted to doubt the goodness of God, there is still hope for us. He's still pursuing us. He will not let us go and he will work through it for his glory and our good. He will bring about redemption. And so my question is, even as we close here this morning, how do we trust Jesus when we don't know what he is doing? How do we trust Jesus in the midst of great suffering and pain that we're all bound to face? And while it's not easy and I don't have all the answers, I do want to suggest just two basic ways for us to consider this morning. We can first trust Jesus by knowing and remembering his character. This is what we must do. And even as we started, we realized we can't trust someone without knowing them, without seeing their track record of faithfulness to us. So know the God of the Bible through his revealed word. Treasure his words. Value his precious promises. Meditate upon the love of Christ on the cross. And in so doing, find embrace in his love as you gaze upon Jesus who suffered in your place. As we look into his word, we see that he is the all-powerful one. And as a result, we can trust him with our lives even when it's difficult. So think and meditate deeply upon Jesus. Look to him. Plead for his grace. And in so doing, anchor yourself to his unchanging character for the storms of life. Trust Jesus by remembering who he is and knowing him deeply. And then I want to leave us to trust Christ by then following him. Just as we trust people by listening to them and obeying them, the same must be true of our Savior. We must trust and obey. If he is worthy of our trust, then we must go with him, even as the disciples do into Judea, even if it means persecution and possible harm. Our call is to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts so aptly, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is he leads the way. Keep close to him. So regardless of where you are in your faith presently here today, Jesus calls each and every one of us, to deepen our resolve to trust him wholly and completely and to keep close to him as he leads us and as he guides us on the narrow way to salvation. For while we are unable, he is able. For Jesus has conquered in our place and the resurrection proves it. So while at times it may be difficult and we may stumble on this journey together, we must remember that our God is one who loves us deeply and he proved it by sending Jesus, his son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And because of this, we can trust him and we can follow him on this path of life. So let's go to the Lord now together in prayer, asking that he would help us to do just this. 
Father, we come before you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have a plan for us and that you know exactly what you are doing. We thank you that you love us and that you won't waste our experiences, but through it, you are bringing glory to yourself and you are bringing good to your people. So while this truth is hard for us to swallow at times, we ask that you would help us to trust you, to look to Jesus and to believe in him. You, Jesus, are the one who has walked the path of suffering in our place and you know all of our weaknesses. And because of this, we can trust you. We can look to you for you have conquered in our place. So help us as a church to trust you all the more deeply and richly and to follow you in all the ways of our life that you've called us to. And we pray this in his name. Amen.